Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Joe Genie. This is Ambassadors at Large. So it's been a little while since the last podcast. I went on vacation and uh, podcasting wise, I kind of stayed on vacation and Brexit happened and a whole bunch of other international news happened and I failed to record any episodes about it. Um, uh, this episode is going to be kind of like a follow-up to the uh, the two uh, the the Rwanda and Second Congo War episodes that we previously done on this podcast. Uh, I did those uh, solo. Uh, this one, fortunately, I have a guest who actually uh, knows what she's talking about. I'm delighted to welcome Christy Diaz. She uh, just recently finished her MA in International Human Rights with a focus on. Uh, uh, the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Conflict Minerals, Extractive Industries, and Corporate Social Responsibility. Christy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to delve in. All right. So there's a lot to talk about with DRC. Um, and I'm mostly going to call it DRC so that it's not confused with Republic of Congo. I really dislike it when... when uh, um, when newspapers just say Congo you know, such, something happens in Congo. And right. I'm like, can you be more specific? Um, but uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, DRC. That's um, when you really have to know the context and who they're talking about to really, because people just tend to lump that whole region of the world together anyway, which makes it easy for newspapers. Yep. Uh, so I have, I have this theory that, um, uh, that uh, at least in, in the American media, they can only handle three Africa stories at one time. And so if, if something mm-hmm. happens in the subcontinent, or you're like, like sub-Saharan Africa, it, if something happens in sub-Saharan Africa, um, it has to necessarily bump a different story. So like if something happens in Zimbabwe, it bumps Somalia off the, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> off the news. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Um, so where, where I left it off with the, the, uh, the last podcast was that the second Congo war had ended. And since then, uh, there's been a peace deal. There's been a fragile peace. There's still conflict going on in, in the Northeast of the country, um, in Ituri province and the Kivus most notably. And you've had two elections, the 2006 election, although there are some definite things that went wrong with it uh, was generally referred to, it's referred to as a Cadillac election. The international community spent more than half a billion dollars on it. It it came off pretty peacefully. You know, most of the UN peacekeeping force was mobilized, thousands of international observers, uh, an enormous resource expenditure by the international community. And you had basically a free and fair election and a free and fair runoff that that put Joseph Kabila, the son of the, the assassinated former President Laurent Kabila uh, in power. Uh, Joseph Kabila has been in power ever since. He won re-election in 2011 under much less uh, free and fair circumstances. A lot of people said that there were irregularities. International organizations, including the Carter Center, uh, no- noted irregularities in the, the electoral vote. A lot of people think that a man named Etienne Chisichetti won the actual election Um Chisichetti himself declared himself president uh, and tried to hold a separate inauguration ceremony and was put under house arrest for several years. We'll get to him a little bit later. Um, But now five years have passed and it's time for the 2016 elections, uh, unless it isn't. Uh, So maybe we can start with, are these elections going to actually happen? 
No. <laughs> um, I mean, it, I think they, they will happen. They're not going to happen this year, which is why I, I pretty quickly said no. Um, and I think, you know, just kind of following recent news sources, you can see that um, the Independent Electoral Commission, CENI, um, C-E-N-I, uh, is pretty disorganized at this point in time. They're saying they have a lack of funding, which is one of the bigger issues with 2011. And we're seeing a lot of the same problems from 2011 already starting to play out with that disorganization piece of the standing institution that's supposed to be credible and is in charge of executing elections in a very complex, large, diverse um, country that doesn't have a lot of um, strong, you know, just even roads to getting places and a lot of strong institutions and the administration that that's needed to carry out the elections. I mean, you have a number of people that have come of age since 2011 that have to be registered, which is one of Kabila's pushes was for a national census, which would be even more of a disaster considering um, where the country's at in terms of its administration and, and bureaucracy. So um, there's a lot of problems that are currently, you know, still in the mix um, there's not a lot happening on from Kabila in terms of pushing things forward. Um, and, you know, and it's definitely unfortunate. Um, and then we've got things like Moise Katumbi being arrested um, and, you know, thrown out of the country um, and all these things that are kind of diverting from, from the real issue here. Um, there certainly has been, a, you know, a lot, a lot of international attention on the 2016 elections um, from both the U.S. and the U.K., pledging money over the last year, you know, to try and incentivize Kabila to push forward on the elections. Um, I mean, the, the thing with Joseph Kabila is that he really doesn't care what the rest of the outside world thinks. Um, he doesn't, you know, Amnesty Human Rights Watch were really pushing last year for him to announce that he would step down and not run a third term. Now, it doesn't make sense for him to do that from an internal perspective because he's really holding the country with the grip of his hand. And if he were to, to, to announce that, um, the military would have no incentive to, to keep him protected. He would likely be very quickly assassinated. So, you know, it's a very tricky predicament that he's in because when he steps down, what's going to happen to him? Um, so I think he's kind of doing this charade game because he, he can't figure out the second part of that question. And he just doesn't have um, enough internal incentive. I mean, I think if, you know, considering that it's not likely that the elections will happen this year, it'll be really interesting to see how the opposition responds to that, what some of the political parties on the ground do in terms of um, peaceful protests. Um, you know, I mean, it's likely that we'll see, you know, a repeat of, of January 2015, where there was about 87 protesters um, that were killed, you know, when he was trying to change the Constitution to change his term limits. So, so this, yeah, this is one thing that we should we should clarify. Technically, uh, Kabila cannot run again. He he served two terms, but mm -hmm. of course, constitutions can be changed. After all, the DRC constitution was changed to allow him to run in the first place because he was so young at the time that right. uh, that he actually wasn't allowed to run. But uh, he was sort of the obvious choice for for various political reasons, but most notably because his father was uh, was the president. But I mean, looking at it from Kabila's perspective, you bring up this this fear of assassination, and this isn't nothing. Like this, his father yeah. was assassinated, and we we forget that. Uh, I mean, we we don't forget, but but it's it's sort of like um, in two thousand and six, the the good election, uh, mm -hmm. the the runner up uh, Jean Pierre Bemba rolled in. 
after accepting defeat, which itself was, was took a lot of political wrangling, um, rolled into Kinshasa, a, a city in which Kabila, who's from the east, is not particularly popular and never really has been, uh, with with a s- several hundred strong armed guard who were just hanging out in the streets of Kinshasa and very quickly got into a firefight with Kabila's own armed guard. So, and and during that election, and again, this is the good election, um, neither candidate campaigned during the runoff for fear of assassination. So this is a a real serious concern. And it it raises this piece, this question of like, even if he wanted to step down, could he? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that that's, that's the biggest question on his mind too. Um, you know, it is, I, I think he does want to step down. I, I do, you know, he's very beloved within that country. When I was there in 2015, um, you know, I spoke to a number of people and this could have been, you know, just getting a completely biased opinion, but, you know, people I think in, in the West don't necessarily put together that he was the one who really has, you know, maintained stability for the last 10 years in the country. He was the one coming out of the first and second Congo wars that was able to, you know, somewhat piece the country back together, right? Foreign direct investment has increased. Um, you know, mining has certainly come a long way within the country. Um, Right now, prices are down, which affects things. Um, but just in terms of kind of getting some structures in place, I mean, Kinshasa runs really well, um, and that's where he's really consolidated his power. And so, you know, it, it's it's very difficult to figure out what his next step would be. Um, I mean, I would foresee he likely would would flee the country. Um, but again. For him, even just economically, um, it would make sense for him to do that. There's not this peaceful you know, transition for him out of power because, you know, there are people, you know, that do strongly dislike him. And even just from a, a military standpoint of, you know, whoever comes in next, this person is still a threat. Um, they're very integrated within um, every aspect of the government. I mean, he did a great job putting in people that he could rely on to, to pull strings with. I mean, and one of them being Moise Kutumbi. Um, he was a very big advocate of Joseph Kabila. And, you know, obviously now he's turning turning sides with him, um, which is kind of interesting. So, but go ahead. It sounds like you're going to jump in it, there. It, it, uh, I was going to just say, let's let's talk a little bit about Moise Kutumbi, who's the, uh, the former governor of uh, Katanga province. And Katanga province is this province in the south of the country that's incredibly rich in minerals. And so Kabila's all, all, long had this kind of complicated economic relationship with that region. And that region has had a long-standing complicated relationship with the rest of the country. It tried yep. to secede with Belgian help in the 60s. Uh, and so uh, with Katumbi now trying to uh, to run for the presidency, um, well, uh, what, what, ha- what happened? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I think, you know, Kachumbi's gotten a lot of press over the last year and a half, and he's done a really good job, I think, of getting people together and bringing attention and just getting getting in the press. Um, and, you know, my, my concerns about Kachumbi was, one, he was very much in Kabila's pocket for a very long time. Um, one great thing that he has done is he has done a lot within the, the Katanga region, um, and you know, kind of increasing the, you know, flow of GDP and capita. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's the copper belt it, for the long, for a long time. It was where a lot of 
you know, Kinshasa's money w- was coming from um, and kind of how, you know, the, the country was able to be economically sustainable. So, you know, he's done a really great job in terms of kind of improving the number of students that have been enrolled in primary education, um, building out health and in- health infrastructure. Um, so I think that there's you know, certainly some good things to be said about Moise Katumbi. My biggest concern, again, is that you know, it, it just seems interesting that all of a sudden, you know, the last year and a half, he's now decided to label Kabila a dictator and stand up to him and, and really kind of be this um, poster child for democracy, which I just don't buy it. Um, I mean, I think anyone that's going to be, you know, running for presidency in Congo has got to have some sort of ulterior motive. I mean, they're sitting on 27 trillion of untapped natural resources. Um, and so it's, and, and, you know, kind of putting that piece aside, like, let's say Sunshine and Rainbows, Congo does somehow miraculously pull off elections this year. It's not going to bring Congo to where it needs to be. There's, you know, it's it's a weak state. And that comes from 40 plus years of dictatorships and hollowing out the state. So there's a lot more that has to happen rather than just elections. And so I think, you know, that was one of Kabila's issues was, you know, stepping into this office and dealing with kind of all the the centers of power that had been built up and not really being able to create any sort of change. I mean, just the, the structures that are there are not set up for that. It also sort of, it's, it's kind of unfortunate. I mean, Kabila has this record of, of, crushing his political opponents, either violently suppressing uh, protesters or in terms of actual political opponents. I mean, you look at 2006, he basically chased Jean-Pierre Bemba out of the country. Bemba is currently at The Hague. Uh, 2011, he has Chisichetti arrested and put under house arrest for several years. Uh, 2016, he now has a an arrest warrant out for Katumbi. Uh, right. and, and Katumbi is now saying that there was an attempt to poison him uh, which I, I, you know, <laughs> some questions around that, right? <laughs> I don't know if that actually happened, but it's just sort of, it's, it, it, um, it, it, this, this basically, I mean, one of the things that concerns me about, I mean, you, you see this with countries where a leader is in power for too long is that eventually the political apparatus gets warped around them. And yep. there's no one else who comes into the, comes into the, the political space. Right. Um, and so it's not so at, there are two candidates who running for president besides Kabila who uh, where we don't know if he's running or not and it's not clear uh it, what's going to happen with Kabila but there there's these two other guys who actually sort of have a chance of winning i mean there's other candidates there's going to be plenty of other right. candidates as well but it's basically as as far as i can tell you you've got Katumbi and then you've got Etienne Shisekedi and Etienne Shisekedi is old. He's yeah. re- I mean, th- there's lots of good things to say about him. He, he stood up to Mobutu when he was prime minister under the Mobutu years, but he's so old that he was prime minister under the Mobutu years. I mean, like, right, do, you remember, <laughs> do you remember, do you remember like during the 2008 campaign when people uh, in the United States, when people were making fun of John McCain for being old and yeah. there, there, there was this website and it was like stuff younger than John McCain.com or whatever. And it was like the vacuum cleaner and the United Nations <laughs> and like sliced bread and stuff like that. Right. Like, and he's got health problems too, which is, you know, a concern. And he's been out of the country for a number of years. So it's really difficult to, yeah. to think, okay, how is he really going to revitalize his, his base of support when he's been out of the country for a number of years? Yeah, you know, he, he's, he, I, I just want to, yeah, just to, to, to put this in, he's older than John McCain is today. 
Right. <laughs> like four, he's 83 years old. So like, yeah. and this is what I mean by like, like lots of, you know, like you, like you say, he's been, you know, he's been out of the country. He's been under house arrest. Um, it's important that there be sort of a, you know, a new generation of, of politicians yeah. who actually have a chance of, of becoming political leaders in the country. And if every single one who stands up, whatever else you think about Katumbi, if every single one of them who stands up gets, gets an arrest warrant put on him, um, it, it yeah. doesn't bode well for the future. No, certainly not. And I mean, both Tishikiti and Katumbi have been, you know, I, I think they've, they've, they've done a great job in terms of rallying people behind them, but they're still very much the figurehead. Um, and that makes them vulnerable, right? Um, it, it puts a, a mark on their head. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult situation. I mean, I worked with a candidate last year who is Congolese and he's in Denver. And, you know, I mean, I can't tell you how many just random people, even within the country, that are running for presidency, which, which gives off this vibe of, you know, it, it's kind of this grab for power, right? And it's very concerning because we don't have a lot of the structures and the institutions that are in place to really help facilitate um, a peaceful election. I mean, the, the best hope that Congo can have is if we have a similarity to 2006, where there's heavy international involvement. Um, you know, UNESCO doesn't look, the peacekeeping operation, it doesn't look like they're going anywhere. They've been getting some funding to kind of help with the election piece of it, which is good. Um, they were a really big player in 2006, not so much in 2011. So, um, you know, it's, it's going to really be up to, you know, the responsibility to protect lever being activated in this situation, which I think will only happen, um, you know, kind of as we're seeing playing out now with the delay. Um, and I think, you know, we'll start to see a lot more movements rise up. I mean, Lucha has been very active. Um, there are youth movements. Um, there's like a number of other movements that are happening on the ground. So it's, it'll be interesting just to kind of see what plays out and how the international community responds. It, it really, I mean, it's this uh, glissement is the, uh, the, the French term slippage. Um, right. it's, it's, uh, it's a really tough call. Would you rather have, I mean, assuming that you have faith in the internet, you know, that in, in the electoral process to be free and fair, which after 2011, it's quite reasonable to, to question that. But, but, um, uh, would you rather have like a, like a, a, a better run election in early 2017 or, uh, a, a less well-run election in the year that it's actually supposed to take place? I mean, the UN just warned recently of political violence if the election is delayed, like Delaying elections is really, I mean, especially given some of the stuff we've seen in the region most recently, the uh, the uh, attempt at successful attempt ultimately by uh, the president of Burundi to run for a third term and all the political turmoil in Burundi that resulted from that, which is right next door, like that kind of thing. Like right. there are real risks to delaying the election. But on the other hand, you don't want something where the 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 CNI is disorganized and, and, and compromised like it was in 2011. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a catch 22. Um, the problem that you get into is that if elections are not held this year, the constitution is violated and we don't know what will come from that. I mean, I can, I'm kind of just running through the scenarios in my head in terms of how many political killings are we going to see? Is it possible that Congo will lead into another world and into another war? Um, it's, you know, I, 
Um, but that, that's the, that's the correct reaction. <laughs> sort of <laughs> exasperated sigh. Um. <laughs> right, and I mean, with it, you know, if we the the concern with delaying the elections is if if you allow for a delay, then will it actually happen? Um, and will Congo ever really be ready to have? the type of elections that it needs to have within the foreseeable future that could be deemed credible and reliable. And, and again, 2006, really, the reason why I was credible and reliable was because of the amount of international attention and support it got from the Western community. Um, and so, you know, it's not feasible to keep having Cadillac elections, but, you know, what what's the alternative, right? I mean, what, what kind of price are you willing to pay with human life? So... Yeah. I also think that there's there's that's one of the best legacies of the 2006 election. Like before that, the the country hadn't had a democratic election that was free and fair uh, since like 1961 or 60. Yeah. yeah. So it it had been it had been nearly half a century, and so the 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 legacy of 06, I think, is that people are you know they they got to vote for the first time and they they got to get the expectation that they that they have a say in the process and that elections should happen and that they should be free and fair and that that sort of i feel like that's lingered like the 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 importance of the election in this cycle i think is a legacy of the fact that we've actually had successful elections in the past and you know uh the population's pretty young i mean I'll, yeah median age is like 18 so right. a lot of the current voters didn't experience the 06 election, but a lot of them did. And and so I think that, that the, the legacy of that and some of the institutions that were built on that are still around in, in 2016. And, and that's one of the reasons why expectations are so high that this thing happened. I mean, b- during the Mobutu years, it was like, oh, the election gets delayed by a year. Who cares? Uh, right. Well, the election didn't matter. It was a show. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, and I think, too, I mean, that's a good point in terms of, you know, remembering they haven't had credible real elections and you know over 40 years since 2006 and so when you think about it from that context only having gone through two election cycles and dealing with the fact that it's a very corrupt country no wonder Sini can't get its act together right I mean they just don't have the experience but they've not built up the political institutions to make this thing run in, in a smooth bureaucracy that it should so I want to I want to focus a little bit while we still have some time on some of the work that you've been doing. You've you've focused a lot on conflict minerals, extractive industries, and yep. corporate social responsibility. Um, let's talk a little bit about this like one paragraph insertion into the mammoth Dodd Frank bill and <laughs> how this like single handedly changed the course of the, like the economy of like one right. third of uh, of the country. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't well, have the actual language in front of me, but it basically, my understanding, it basically required companies, it didn't actually change what you could do, but it required companies to disclose if they were getting their minerals from a conflict country. Right. And so um, perhaps you can sort of explain a little bit about, this was 2010-ish, mm-hmm. um, perhaps you can explain a little bit about what happened next. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the the intention behind Dodd-Frank was very well-intentioned. Um, you know, obviously, we don't want conflict minerals in our laptops within our smartphones. Um, no one wants to be fueling the conflict within the eastern region where the Colton Tantalum and Tim is coming from. Um, and the conditions of the mines are completely atrocious. They're, they're run by rebel groups. Um, M23, that was where they got all their funding from in 2012, 2013. Um, and so, you know, it's, it was 
the U.S.'s attempt to try and solve um, part of the issue within Eastern Congo with good intentions, with, but with not enough foresight in terms of the implications that it would have. Um, what happened as a result of Dodd-Frank was um, a lot of bureaucracy that was not very effective um, coming from Kinshasa. Kinshasa is very far removed from the eastern region. Um, it's, I don't remember how many miles, but it's, it's like comparing California to New York. Um, and so, you know, Kabila's done a good job of consolidating his power in Kinshasa. He's never been able to handle the eastern region very well. Um, and so what ended up happening was there was a lot of bureaucracy and systems set up that just basically put people out of work on, on the ground, um, which made people really angry. Um, and so, you know, obviously people making a dollar a day or less than a dollar a day is not great, but it's certainly better than making nothing. Um, and what ended up happening was, you know, as a result of all the bureaucracy that went into place to label conflict-free mines, um, it slowed everything down, stopped production, um, and then it didn't actually solve the root of the problem. Um, the, the mines that are conflict mines, what ends up happening is those minerals get sent to um, conflict-free labeled mines or smuggled out to Rwanda or Uganda. So yeah, it's, it's like Rwanda is a, a, a top exporter of coltan despite not having any coltan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, right. And one of the other things about it, it's it's one of these little unforeseen consequences is is that, you know, when when efforts were put in place, like the Kimberley process is put in place for, for diamonds, diamonds really come from a few countries in particular. And so like a few countries really have a, and a few companies really have kind of a monopoly on the, the market. Um, and so you can, you can pressure those, you can say like, all right, so these diamonds were coming from this place and you can track really easily where they're coming from and this sort of thing. Um, with Congo, it's like, it produces a ton of minerals, but it produces like a single digit percentage of the world's total of all of those minerals. And so if you're like a Canadian mineral company and you're mining something in, 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 um, Eastern Congo, your choice is basically not mine it or else your choice is get labeled a, you know, a blood coltan or whatever, or get your coltan from someplace else. <laughs> and so right. a lot of, a lot of companies just basically pulled out their operations and crashed the local economy in a lot of places. Right. Yeah. Well, and the thing that's interesting to note too, you know, in terms of differentiation of the Kimberley process and Dodd-Frank is the Kimberley process was really spearheaded by the diamond companies. And it was, spearheaded by the major players within the diamond industry. And there's only so many. It's a much smaller industry that has a lot more um, dominance of a, a couple of major companies. You know, with conflict minerals, I mean, this stuff goes, you know, in, in a lot of different materials. And so it's a much bigger industry. Um, and it's also something where it's like you can it, – it's hard to melt down a diamond, right? Um, it's a lot harder – I mean, it's a lot easier to take, you know, the natural mineral and, you know, you, it's, it's difficult, more difficult to trace. Um, for example, gold. Um, gold can be melted down and you'll have no idea where it came from. So it's, you know, it, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> Let, let's talk a little bit about also the, the peacekeeping mission. It's gone through a couple of name changes. Uh, peacekeeping has a long and, and kind of troubled history in DRC, dating back to the, the fatal plane crash of former UN Secretary General Doug Hammarskjöld. The current peacekeeping mission, I feel like UN peacekeeping missions get an unfair rap because they're basically assigned to do the impossible 
and yeah. they're not given enough resources to do it. And the, like the thing about, about um, Monosco is that it, it, what do they have? 17,000. What, what, what's the current piece? Yeah, I think it's around 20,000. Right, um, they've they've upped it from the days that I was in the UN. You, yeah. So you're, you're talking about 20,000 troops and the country is massive. <laughs> country's yeah. really big, and so and these guys have like limited mandate, and a lot of times, you know, the the you know there are troops who are there are troop contributing countries who are sending them in with limited resources, and they're having to share helicopters with you know the peacekeeping mission in South Sudan next door, and it's, this this is no way to to quell an unstable like region sure. really within a within yeah. a country. So let, I mean. It, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people look at Monusco and they're sort of like, it's there year after year after year and things don't get better in the Kivus. Right. So is it the UN's fault or, or is it basically, <laughs> or, or are they basically doing the best that they can with, with, with what they've got? Is right. It, is it well, worth keeping Monusco? In? I mean, that's, that's a really loaded question, but like, is it worth keeping Manu? And occasionally like, you know, the peacekeepers themselves get in trouble for doing terrible things. Um, right. Well, but- rape and <laughs> all that good stuff. And, and a lot of that just comes down to not very good training, um, of, of the soldiers. I mean, the thing that people don't think about is that if we didn't have the peacekeeping operation there. You'd have a complete security vacuum. Um, I mean, the most of the peacekeeping troops in UNESCO are, are situated in the Eastern region, and they've, they've been the, the main force of um, keeping stability there. Now, I mean, the problem is about $10 billion has been spent um, over the last 16 years on UNESCO, on the peacekeeping operation. That's a lot of money. Um, especially for Congo to still be considered a failed state. So, you know, one of the challenges is not only being underfunded um, or just kind of not having enough support from the UN when they do have come up with a situation, um, you know, there's kind of royal conflict in the Turi. I think, a couple, I want to say 10 years ago or so, there was a, an incident and um, the peacekeeping operation wanted to act quickly, but they had to get approval from Geneva. And there's all these bureaucratic processes in place that really inhibit them um, from being able to, to move quickly enough on the ground to, to be as effective as they could be. So, you know, it's, it's again, it's another catch-22. We don't know what the eastern region would look like if UNESCO hadn't been there for the last 16 years. Um, and I think one of the best things that the peacekeeping operation did do was um, change its mandate in 2006 to really more so focus on helping with the elections. And I think that that was a really positive change. Um, within the last couple of years, their mandate has focused more towards trying to strengthen state institutions. And I think that that's, that's good and try and kind of increase local capacity um, and local peace building processes. Um, but, you know, it's... It, it's hard to say which way to go with it because we don't know what it would look like without it. But it's also not great that they've been there for 16 years, spent $10 billion and they're no further along than really where they started. Um, just thinking about going forward in the next couple of years. I mean, the, the most likely scenario it seems to me is that the country sort of continues to kind of putter along fitfully Um, but what would be your sort of like 
best and worst case scenario. Like it, it sort of strikes me that that I mean, one thing that I, I've noticed in countries that have been through really ruinous wars, and people forget how it was it was horrifically underreported how bad the Second Congo War was, how many people, people died, um, how 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 ruinous it was. Um, like you look at a country like like Bosnia or Lebanon that's like deeply unstable, but nobody wants to go back to war because they remember how bad war is. Like is it it, it seems like the the parties in in DRC don't want that outcome. Which, which you know the the elites don't want that outcome. The the people don't want that outcome. Uh, just because they remember how how bad it is and how not uh how in you know. Like there were no real winners in the Second Congo War, you know. No. Um, so, so like, like, but 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 if the elections go badly or or fail to happen or or fail to happen in twenty sixteen, uh, it could be really unstable. Yeah, and I, and I think there's a lot of fear around that. Um, it, part of the problem is that, you know, like you mentioned earlier, a large portion of the population is now between that 18 and 25 age bracket. So they don't really remember what the first and second Congo wars were like, or they were very, they were pretty young. Um, and Congo has the lowest, one of the lowest human development indexes in the world. So, you know, people don't live there very long. Um, so I think, you know, kind of what we're seeing with a lot of the youth movements is they, they know that they, deserve free and fair elections. Um, and it, it, it's just, it'll be interesting to see at what, what cost they're willing to take it. Um, you know, how, how high of a price will they pay for it? So, you know, and, and a lot of the things, um, you know, kind of the, the instability is if Congo is going to transition to democracy, that's, that's just a part of it. Um, there will be instability that, that comes with that and, and violence. Um, I mean, I think one thing that is really positive is there's definitely been an amount of increased foreign direct investment within the country. Um, and so, you know, if the country can remain stable, that will continue to increase, which will be good, which will be good. So, you know, it, it's, it's difficult to say what's going to happen. Um, if, if Congo doesn't have elections this year, my fear is that there will be a lot of political uprisings and, um, you know, maybe Kabul will be able to control it and it'll just be, you know, maybe another couple hundred of political killings kind of as a result of that. Um, or it could lead to another war. We, we don't know. Um, and again, it, you know, we don't know what the international community is going to do and how they're going to respond. I mean, if, unfortunately we've been pretty busy the last couple of months, it seems, um, with other things happening in the world. So <laughs> it's just, you know, unfortunately, Congo always tends to get the, the short end of the stick on that. So, I mean, we'll just kind of have to see what happens, but I, I don't see a lot of changes occurring in terms of the amount of political freedom within the country. Um, you know, really, I'm just kind of, my, my hope would be if things continue to economically improve within the country that that would kind of spill out to other areas as well. And hope, hopefully, um, Hopefully you will uh, come back on the podcast and we can talk. A, a, there's so much more to talk about. Uh, yeah. Christy Deus, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And, yeah, uh, thank you, Joe. I, I hope that uh, I hope that you return once uh, once the elections do happen. We can uh, we can talk about those. <laughs> and uh, if anything else comes along in your studies or professional work that you feel uh, the the world deserves to know about, uh, you are always welcome to come back on the podcast. But, uh, awesome. but yeah. 
Thanks uh, for having me. Uh, you can find the podcast online at uh, joegenie.com slash podcast. That's J-O-E-G-E-N-I dot com slash podcast. And you can subscribe for free in the iTunes store by searching for Ambassadors at Large. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll be back with another episode real soon. Until then, so long. <laughs>